is Yudah Cohen with Brit Chazon Vision Magazine coming at you from the Gofna Hills in northern Judea and this is the Next Stage Podcast. Today is the 11th day of the month of ER and the 26th day of the Omer Count. Since leaving Egypt thousands of years ago, the children of Israel have had a practice of counting the Omer period each year on the 49 days between our exodus from slavery and receiving national prophecy at Sinai. The Omer period has gained the status of a semi-morning period over the last couple thousand years due to the fact that Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, one of Israel's greatest sages, lost 24,000 students during the first 32 days of the Omer. Rabbi Akiva was the spiritual leader of the Bar Kokhba revolt to free our country from Roman rule, and it's widely believed that his students died as a result of fighting Rome. <laughs> Joining me today is my colleague, Denit. Denit, say hello. Hey, it's good to be here. This is actually a very exciting week. For the second time in the modern state of Israel's history, we are hosting the Eurovision Song Contest. The second time? Second time. This happened before? Yes, it did. (laughs) When? I believe it was back in 1969. Oh, sorry, 1979. This year is the 64th Eurovision Contest. And Israel's been participating since 1973. Mm-hmm. So that seems weird to me. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I you know, Israel is located in the Middle East. Yes. We're a very Middle Eastern society. Anybody who's been to Israel, spent significant time in Israel, uh, understands that it's a very uniquely Middle Eastern society. And geographically, we're obviously in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Yet our participation in institutions like Eurovision... Uh, to me, just seem like very blatant. Uh, just seem like very blatant expressions of certain sectors of Israeli society wanting to be part of the West and not the Middle East. And uh, and I think that's one of the major challenges we have here. You know, in Israeli society, is this kind of like identity crisis. You know, it seems to me that the most natural thing in the world would be for our sports teams to compete against other sports teams in the region, Egypt, Bahrain, Lebanon, uh, but instead they compete against Greece and uh, Spain and Germany. And I think that's part of the problem. You know, I think that's, you know, especially in the course of our work with Palestinians, uh, we found that, you know, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to what Israel is, what our identity is, where we belong, and even you know, certain politicians within Israeli society have expressed this idea that we are an outpost, or they want us to be an outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East. Yeah. So what's interesting is um, to participate in Eurovision, you don't actually need to be in the continent of Europe. You just need to be a member state of the European Broadcasting Union. And there are actually uh, quite a few... Middle Eastern and North African countries that are member states who mm. choose not to participate in Eurovision. You know, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, um, Turkey used to participate, but they've since stopped. Uh, really, the only countries that could be considered not Europe other than Israel um, that do participate are Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia, which are really, you know, on the mm-hmm. border with the European mm-hmm. continent. Mm-hmm. So, why do you think Israel participates? 
Um, it's a good question. I think um, I think Israel has this sort of complex that that you know a lot of the founding so-called members of the modern state of Israel they came from Europe they came with a pretty orientalist view of the Arabs and Palestinians living here and also of the Mizrahi Jews that came um, and I, I think that has a lot to do with it that they don't really want to become a part of what they considered the the barbarians of the region um, and you know I even though these founding members are no longer actually leading our country, their their ideological descendants definitely are. I mean, the entire blue and white party um, in the most recent elections, they're just, you know, a Mapai 2.0. Mm-hmm. Right, Mapai being Israel's first ruling party under yeah. David Ben-Gurion, and Kaholavan blue and white being the party of Benny Gantz. Yes. That was the main challenger to Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to lead the country, to steer the country. Yeah. Although I think in many ways Netanyahu also can be lumped together with our westernized ruling class. And, and I think, I mean, when we talk about Israeli society, I think it's important to understand Israeli society because a lot of outsiders really, really don't, both, both our friends and our critics. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, most people, when they speak about Israeli issues are really coming from the wrong psychological paradigm. Even political terms like right and left are very misleading when it comes to Israeli society. Uh, For example, I would say that the term left in Israeli society generally refers to two groups. Uh, The first is Israel's westernized liberal Zionist ruling class, which from a Kabbalistic perspective, from a, a Torah perspective, we can identify as the force of Yosef that cares about the material well-being of the Jewish people, things like our security, our economy, diplomacy, etc., and maintains a very European style of nationalism while remaining out of touch with the actual values and traditions of Am Yisrael. So, you know, this idea of Yosef in Hebrew thought, Yosef is like the tribe within Israel or the force within Israel that for the most part resembles the dominant civilization of the world in any given generation. So for example, when Yosef Ben Yaakov, the original Yosef, uh, was alive and was ruling Egypt, you know, second only to, to Paro, his brothers came down to Egypt and did not recognize him. The other sons of Yaakov saw Yosef as an Egyptian. They, he looked like an Egyptian. He resembled Egypt. Uh, so to today, I think the force of Yosef within Israeli society today is the part of Israeli society that looks like the West, that resembles Western civilization and uh, for the most part embraces the values and embraces the worldview. It looks at the world through the ideological prism of Western civilization. And, and is this an important role or, or something we should try to avoid? I think it's important. It's an important component of our collective identity. I just don't think, and, and I think that we can look at Yosef as having built the state. You know, the state of Israel was for the most part established by Yosef in terms, of especially the infrastructure, the labor unions, the schools, the political institutions. All of that was built by Yosef. Yosef built the economy. Yosef built the army. Today, the high tech industry. That's Yosef. The problem is. Like I said, 
Yosef appears to, today to be out of touch with the actual values, traditions, worldview of Am Yisrael. Now, the second group uh, that I think we refer to when we talk about the left in Israeli society is a much more radical minority that's much more universalist and has almost fully adopted the narrative of Israel's enemies and critics. So this is a much smaller group. It's a very marginal group within Israeli society. I wouldn't call the first group an actual left. Like, I wouldn't say that our westernized ruling class is a left, really. I wouldn't say that the force of Yosef really is a left. I would say that the liberal Zionists. Right. Typically in, in, in Western countries, the West, like the ruling class it's not the left. Is not associated with the right. left wing. In Israel it is. In Israel it is. And I, and I saw uh, even in the uh, interview, a uh, former member of Knesset, Michael Oren, gave to the New Yorker and then cut short because he didn't like the questions. Uh, he said that, you know, in, you know in, in the West, for the most part, you have this like pyramid with the right at the top kind of controlling everything. And then you have the youth at the bottom who, for the most part, identifies left. In Israel, it's flipped, or in Israel, it's, it's reversed, in that the minority at the top who control everything are perceived as the left in Israeli society, and the youth, which is the majority because, you know, Israel obviously has a much higher birth rate than Western countries do, so the youth at the bottom identifies as right. But what do left and right mean? So when we say left and right in Israel, we don't mean the same thing that people mean in the United States or Europe. Here, like I said, the left for the most part means a westernized ruling class, what we call the force of Yosef, or this kind of radical minority that has for the most part uh, adopted the positions of Palestinians and the Palestinian solidarity community, perceiving Israel as this kind of like colonial western fortress, this settler colony that uh, has a lot of moral problems, even in terms of, like, our existence, not just, like, this policy or that policy, but the very existence of how the state functions, uh, how the state was formed, uh, the policies today, these are all expressions of something inherently unjust. And when I say that this group has almost fully adopted the narrative of Israel's enemies, I think it's important to talk about what a narrative is, like, why narratives are important. Uh, the way I would define a narrative is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. And I think when it comes to the last hundred years of our history here in this land with the Palestinians, there really are millions of facts that can be chosen from. And I think Israel and its supporters choose certain facts, and I think that Palestinians and their supporters choose other facts. I don't think we're really lying. I think we're all selecting facts that are true. And we're interpreting those facts. We're interpreting history a certain way. We're interpreting reality a certain way according to how we organize those facts. And then we, of course, contextualize those facts within an ideological worldview. And those are the two competing narratives or several competing narratives here in this land. So when we talk about right, when we talk about right-wingers in Israeli society, we're also, for the most part, talking about two very distinct groups. I think the first group is what we can refer to as ideological Jewish nationalists who are fully living the aspirations of Jewish history, who are living in the psychological paradigm of Jewish history. And I would call this the force of Yehuda. Like if we're calling the liberal Zionists the force of Yosef, we can call the 
ideological Jewish nationalists the force of Yehuda. That's the part of our collective identity that focuses on what's unique about the Jewish people, what's separate about the Jewish people, what makes us different from other nations, what makes us special, um, our destiny, our history, our, our mission in history. That's Yehuda. And for the most part, we can say that most of the people living in the psychological paradigm of Jewish history are on the right, what we call the right. And the other right, the other group of people we refer to when we say the right in Israeli society are those with a European style of nationalism similar to the first group of leftists, meaning the Yosef people. These are also Yosef people. So Yosef people just... Like, this is a Yosef right. More conservative political... Exactly. They're like, it's like a westernized... They're like western conservatives. And they focus on things like our security and uh, economic liberalism. I would say that our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is an expression of the Yosef right. Meaning like he's a western conservative more than he's an ideological Jewish nationalist. I would say that Avigdor Lieberman is this. I would say Naftali Bennett is this. I'd say, you know, there's uh, all sorts of organizations and institutions in Israeli society right now that are expressions of this kind of like Western conservatism um, growing. Um, and it's usually more among affluent Israelis. You know, usually the majority uh, of Israeli society who would identify as right are probably more what we'd call the ideological nationalists. Uh, on, in some way, shape, or form. Now, I think we're interesting, you know, our movement could be identified as the Yehuda left, meaning we're living in the psychological paradigm of Jewish history, but we're coming at it from a leftist perspective. Like we're... Um, and in the way that the left is, you know, portrayed in Western countries typically, like actually... Left right, like meaning actually revolutionary, right. uh, actually, you know, subscribing to hi- historical materialism as a legitimate and accurate analysis of capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, actually identifying capitalism as one of the major obstacles to Jewish liberation. Right. Uh, you know, as a global system, and certainly how capitalism as a system and certain special interest groups in the United States and in European countries influence foreign policy in a way that obstructs Jewish liberation uh, and creates more problems for us and exacerbates our conflict with the Palestinians. Also, we could be called left because we're able to see and understand and empathize with the Palestinian narrative. There's many things that they're saying that's true. And I think the fact that we're able to acknowledge it we're able to acknowledge Palestinian grievances. We're able to recognize Palestinian aspirations in a way that doesn't force us to retreat from Jewish aspirations, in a way that doesn't make us any less connected to the historic destiny and mission of the children of Israel, you know, puts us in this kind of interesting Yudah left box, which is very rare in Israeli society, but it's not rare if you look at our history. I think that we can put the Lehi in this category as well, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, uh, who are very much using a Marxist analysis and Marxist tools in their struggle to liberate our homeland from British rule, and even attempted uh, on many occasions to unite with other progressive elements in the Semitic region, other Semitic peoples who are also fighting imperialism. Uh, there are also Palestinians in Lehi, especially from Abu Ghosh, 
I think that, you know, if we're going to be anachronistic, we could even look at uh, movements like uh, the Zealots and the Sicarii in our struggle to free this land from Roman rule as Yehuda left, as kind of these like revolutionary left-wing Jewish nationalist freedom fighters. Right, actually, um, in one of Howard Fast's books uh, about the Maccabees, he... My Glorious Brothers. My Glorious Brothers, exactly. He... uh, he in the beginning, in the before before the book begins, he you know gives a thank you to these great fighters who were the models of what a great revolution against an oppressive um, invader is. Right, um, and uh, Howard Fast was considered the progressive novelist of the early twentieth century. Yeah, and uh, and it is an amazing book. I do encourage listeners to go out and buy the book "My Glorious Brothers" by Howard Fast. If you want to understand the story of Hanukkah, the story of the Maccabeim, the story of our fight for freedom against uh, Syrian Greek rule over two thousand years ago, uh, that's a great novelization of that story. Uh, I actually feel very close to that story. I first of all, I happen to be from the same tribe and sub-tribe of the Maccabeim. You know, I'm a Kohen from the lineage of Tzadok, just like. The Maccabim were Kohanim from the lineage of Tzadok. Uh, and I also live in their partisan camp. I live in the place where the Maccabim trained for war and organized their society, also according to what we would today call very communist uh, way of organizing society. Uh, of course, it was a partisan camp during a revolution, so um, that makes the most sense. But perhaps we can even kind of anachronistically stretch this theory and apply this title of kind of like left-wing Jewish nationalism to the Maccabim as well. Although I don't think it's so easy to to retroactively apply these terms. I think it it gets us into trouble. We see people doing it with the word Zionism a lot. Yeah. Um, Like Zionism to many Israelis is a word that can be retroactively applied to you know, the Maccabees and the Zealots and the Sikari and even many of our biblical heroes. Right, I remember someone told me once that Yoshua was the first Zionist. Um, and I... <laughs> right. And, and I'm pretty sure that wasn't the... I'm pretty sure. Right, and then somebody <laughs> else will come along and argue, no, Avraham was the first Zionist. Yeah. Right? And the truth is, Yoshua was not a Zionist and Avraham was not a Zionist. And Yehuda Maccabee was not a Zionist, and uh, Elazar ben Yair was not a Zionist, and Shimon bar Giora was not a Zionist, and none of these people were Zionists. These are great heroes of Jewish history, and they all fought for Jewish liberation. But if Yehoshua ben Nun were to uh, meet one of us, if we were to go back in time and meet Yehoshua and ask him, hey, are you a Zionist? He wouldn't know what we're talking about. If we were to go back in time and meet Rabbi Akiva and say, are you a Zionist? He wouldn't know what we're talking about. And if we say, are you a Palestinian? He also wouldn't know what we're talking about. But he fits the definition of Zionist that most self-defined Zionists adhere to. And he also fits the definition of Palestinian that most Palestinians adhere to, right? This idea of, you know, the indigenous peoples of Palestine throughout time, regardless of whether you're a Hebrew or a Jebusite or a Canaanite or a Philistine or whatever. If you're one of the indigenous inhabitants of this country now known as Palestine or for a long time known as Palestine, that makes you Palestinian. So, you know, we both tend to kind of like retroactively apply uh, modern terms to figures, especially heroes who predate those terms. Uh, So I think it's safest to really 
defines Zionism as a stage of Jewish liberation, as one of many Jewish liberation movements. I think Zionism, for the most part, existed between the 1890s and 1967. And I think it was a very successful Jewish liberation movement that achieved maybe not what its own founders and thinkers set out to achieve, like it didn't normalize the Jewish people and it didn't end anti-Semitism, but I think it did achieve many of the deeper collective aspirations of the Jewish people. It brought us back to our land. It ingathered a broken and scattered people back to the homeland we had been displaced from thousands of years earlier. It revived a dead language, you know, the Hebrew language, back to everyday use as like just you know, a language that's spoken across the country in every industry and institution. Made the desert bloom. It's an agricultural revolution in a, in a soil that was very hard to work. Um, and we could argue that Zionism also, to a certain extent, liberated the country from British occupation, although the Lehi, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, who I would really give most of the credit for freeing Palestine from the British, did not self-identify as Zionists. They were very clear uh, on many occasions that we are not a Zionist movement. We are an indigenous people's liberation movement. And somehow they saw that as being not Zionist. They were identifying Zionism as belonging to specific institutions, like Chaim Weizmann is a Zionist, the Haganah is a Zionist you know, militia, uh, David Ben-Gurion is a Zionist, Jabotinsky is a Zionist, we are not Zionists. We are a native people fighting for our freedom, just like the Maccabim, just like the Zealots, just like the Sikari, just like Bar Kokhba and Rabbi Akiva, and there's nothing Zionist about that. But we can be more generous and say that Zionism also had something to do with the liberation of our homeland from British rule. But then I would argue that Zionism finally succeeded in 1967 when we returned to Zion, when the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. And I think since then, Israel has been waiting for something new. I'd argue that the Jewish people have been ready for a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology ever since we returned to Zion in 1967. I think a big part of the problem with having so many of our political leaders being stuck in this, the good old days of, of Zionism in the 40s and 50s, uh, is that they aren't really looking to, to look for something new. They're, they're just sort of managing the state rather than leading the state. Right. They're not, they're, there's no vision. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to provide. We had Vision Magazine, right, at Brit Chazon. Brit Chazon is the Vision Alliance. That's how it would tra- I think that's how you translate into English, right? The Vision Alliance, Brit Chazon. And uh, so I'd say that the Vision Alliance, you know, Brit Chazon, does not look very favorably on bringing Eurovision, right? That's not our vision. That's somebody else's vision. That's Eurovision to Israel. Right. And the people who are bringing Eurovision to Israel are the Yosef people. Like the Yosef people, whether they be liberal or conservative, remember, most Israelis don't get to be liberal or conservative. You know, we might be the subjects or objects that are argued about by liberals and conservatives elsewhere, but we're not really liberals or conservatives. We're people stuck in an ethnic conflict. You know, we can be nationalist or we can be revolutionary or we can be progressive but we're not really li- we, we don't really have the privilege to be liberal or conservative here so much our, some of our leaders do and uh, obviously the leaders most detached 
from our real identity are those who get to kind of be liberal and be conservative, and they like Eurovision. Those who want to be part of Europe, who see it as a big deal. I, I think the Israelis who are happy that Eurovision is here, uh, who are excited to host Eurovision, are the Israelis who see it as a real diplomatic achievement. Right. That they're, like, it's, it's not about... Like, Eurovision. Oh, we're accepted by Europe. <laughs> right. It it shows we get to be part, and of course, there's opposition to that as well. That that uh, that Eurovision coming here is some legitimization of Israeli policies, uh, you know, on Palestinians. But uh, apparently, eight percent of I think Iceland, I think it was Iceland, um, signed a petition to to boycott Eurovision this year. Eight percent is a huge percentage of an entire country's population. <laughs> right. I don't know the population of Iceland, but. But okay, eight percent. Eight percent is still a, a huge percentage. As an equivalent, it would be about thirty million Americans mm-hmm. signing a petition to boycott. Right. So, <laughs> so not everybody's happy about Eurovision being hosted in Israel. Not every Israeli is happy about it. Not every Palestinian is happy about it. Not every foreigner is happy about it. But uh, here it is, and it's really like an imposition on our culture, on our identity. When you think about it, you know, Eurovision is taking place in Tel Aviv, which is like the capital of Yosef. Tel Aviv is definitely not the capital of the state of Israel, but it's the capital of Yosef Israel. Remember, Yosef today, um, I I think Yosef is important. I think, you know, Yosef has the ability to build things and create things, in a way that the Yehuda force can't. Mm-hmm. But I think that, and, and I think Yosef, for the most part, built the country largely through colonialist tools. But I also think that we're at a point in history now where Yosef feels extremely entitled, feel we built the state, this is our state, and the wrong Jews seem to be taking over. Slowly. And it's because of the Yosef people, being as westernized as they are, don't have all that many kids compared to the Yuda people or other forces within Israeli society. Also, a lot of them are leaving Israel. Right. Some of the Yosef people leave. But but for the most part, I'd say that Yosef feels very entitled to rule. They feel it's their state. They founded the state. They're afraid of what's going on. And there is a cultural war in Israeli society. There's like this cultural conflict of Israeli society between the forces of, of Yosef and Yuda. And I think it's a real, it's a real conflict. It's a real struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, on, on the surface, it does appear to be like a conflict between uh, a native peoples, like indigenous culture, and a westernized ruling class. But I think it's deeper than that. And I think there is positive to Yosef. I, I don't think Yosef should be running the state anymore. But I do think Yosef should be part of the state. Mm-hmm. And I think there are things that Yosef can do, you know, that other forces within Israeli society can't. You know, so there is this cultural war being raged, you know, also in the diaspora, not just in Israeli society. And I think it's like between those who are psychologically living in Jewish history and those psychologically living in the contemporary politically correct West. And on the surface, it, it does look like a conflict between a westernized ruling class and a more traditionalist and nationalist population. There's also something deeper taking place between the forces of Yudah and Yosef, and both have something to offer. Although Yosef built a state and you know, played a leading role in achieving most of Zionism's successes, the nation's ready for something new, mm-hmm. something greater than Zionism, some, a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology. And uh, Yosef's role in Israeli society and in the Jewish world should shift from being a leading role to a supporting role. 
as Israel moves forward. I, I, I think that's just clear. You know, Yosef, we could look at as Zionism. And Zionism accomplished great things um, in some ways through not so great means. And I think whatever this post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology we formulate is, it needs to protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess. And um, at this point, you know, if you look at any major political issue, any contentious political issue in Israeli society, I'd say that it's an expression of a friction between the force of Yudan Yosef. It's like an, an expression of the friction between Jewish nationalism, like deep Jewish identity, like deep Jewish national consciousness, and this like kind of Western liberalism. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, whatever post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology uh, gets formulated, and there will probably be more than one, because you know I think we should encourage listeners and anybody interested in being part of this endeavor to really formulate for themselves what do they think the goals of Jewish history are, what has already been achieved, what's left to achieve, what are the obstacles standing in the way, and what can we do to be characters in the story of smashing those obstacles. I think we're going to come to many, many, many different conclusions. People are going to formulate different uh, flavors of you know Jewish liberation ideologies for the 21st century, just like Zionism ultimately had many different ideological streams. I think whatever comes after Zionism will also have many different ideological streams. And Yeah, we're already seeing, I mean, a lot of the people who we interact with in our, in our peace work, um, everyone has their own idea of what really the next step mm-hmm. for this country should be. And some of them are similar, some are very different, mm-hmm. but we're already seeing, you know, different strains of whatever this next ideology is. Right. And so that's good. I think yeah. that's healthy. And I think that's productive. I think that's good. We're, we're heading in a good direction. And this podcast is really about that, like about figuring out the next stage. What's the next stage of Jewish liberation? You know, what comes after Zionism? What are the goals that the Jewish people need to focus on achieving right now? I have my own ideas. I know you do too. Yeah. Uh, but this is something listeners should really think about. And when it comes to Eurovision being here, you know, Eurovision is really a, a great example of an issue that's contentious. You know, the Yosef people really like it because it shows some kind of acceptance. It shows that you know we're kind of part of Europe or we could be part of Europe. The Yehuda people don't like it. It's also here during the Omer period, which is traditionally a time of the year where we don't have live music. Like the Jewish people do not listen to live music, you know, during the barley harvest. This is a quasi-mourning period for the Jewish people. Like the nation of Israel, for the most part, does not do things, you know, like like Eurovision during this time of year. Uh, I I think also some of the Eurovision festivities are going to be held on Shabbat. So from what I understand, there's something called... I, I forget what it's called, but it's like a throughout the entire week there are festivities. It's like partying every night. Um, the The grand final does start after Shabbat ends, but it starts about half an hour after Shabbat ends, which makes me think that um, you know the preparations for the the finals are are going to be done on Shabbat, which it, you know in itself is problematic. <laughs> right. And that, that's part of the friction here. I think that is part of the friction between Yosef and Yudah. Like, Yudah would obviously prioritize Shabbat and the Omer period above acceptance into, you know, some European institution like Eurovision. 
And you know, what's interesting is um, the, the year that we hosted Eurovision in 1979, we actually won that year again, um, but Israel actually declined to host it the next year. Um, first of all, because of the expense, you know, it's not cheap to Right, to and, and the way we know this is all of the speeding tickets and parking tickets Israeli police have been giving out just to raise money for Eurovision. Yeah. Just those. And the fact that um, the broadcasting company that's hosting it, Khan, they had to take a multi-million shekel um, loan from the government. That's besides the point. But also, we declined because um, the date chosen for the contest uh, actually was on Yom Zikaron in 1980. Um, and for some reason, I mean, I, I understand that Israel really respects Yom Zikaron. That's our Memorial Day. That's yeah, the that's day that we remember all of our fallen soldiers. And I, I think it, it is important to respect that day, but what I don't understand is why we aren't respecting the Omer. Right. And I think that's part of the friction. That's part of the friction we see in Israeli society between the force of Yosef and the force of Yehuda. Like, Yosef is just like, okay, great, the Omer, but Eurovision. And Yehuda is not even sure Eurovision is so great, but the Omer. Right. Like, how can you do that? Like, how can we bring all, like, basically this, like, circus of festivities and live music and, you know, competition to Israel during a time of year when we're quasi-mourning. Right. So it's a question of how much we're psychologically living in Jewish history versus how much we're psychologically living in the contemporary 2019 world. And I think that is exactly the friction between Yudah and Yosef. Which doesn't necessarily fall into the friction between right and left. No, it's not a right-left thing, although it's often confused as a right-left thing. And it's not a religious-secular thing, because there are plenty of Yosef Jews with kippot on their heads, who observe Shabbat, on a personal level at least. Uh, and there are plenty of Jews without kippot who wouldn't self-identify as religious, who are really psychologically living in the story of Israel, who are really living Jewish history. So I don't think it's a right-left divide, and I don't think it's a religious-secular divide. I think it's a Yudah-Yosef divide. Those who are psychologically living in the paradigm of Jewish history versus those who are psychologically living in the paradigm of 2019. And I'm not sure that, that one is 100% right and the other is 100% wrong. I think ultimately we're supposed to transcend that friction. And that's what I think a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology is meant to do. And hopefully it'll be part of what we unpack and try to achieve on this podcast. Great. Anyway, Denise, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And uh, I hope listeners tune in next time when we'll discuss Netanyahu's struggle to form a new government. If you enjoyed this first episode of The Next Stage, please leave us a review and subscribe to The Next Stage Podcast. That would really help us to spread our message and get these conversations out to a much wider audience. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for supporting the way.